You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 11, entitled Memory, Temperaments, Physical Education, Art, given on August 16, 1923. There are two aspects we must consider in education. One is related to lesson subjects, and the other relates to the children, whose faculties we must develop according to knowledge based on true observation of the human being. If we adopt the methods described in these lectures, our teaching will always appeal to the particular faculties that should develop during the various stages of life. We must pay special attention, however, to the development of memory in children. Here it must be realized that because they lacked a certain understanding of human nature, Our predecessors tended to burden the memories of children, and, as I said yesterday in another connection, there has been a tendency to go to the opposite extreme. Most modern systems of education tend to ignore memory almost entirely. Both methods are incorrect. The point is that memory should be left alone before the change of teeth, at which point children generally begin school. I said that during this period of life the physical body, ether body, astral body, and I-being work as a unit. The way children develop through imitating, everything they observe around them stimulates, even within the physical body itself, the forces that develop memory. Thus, during these childhood years, memory must be allowed to develop without interference. After the change of teeth, however, when the element of soul and spirit is, in a sense, released from the body, it is very important to train the memory in a systematic way. Throughout our lives, memory places demands on our physical bodies. Unless there is an overall development of the physical body, memory will be impaired. Indeed, it is well known that many kinds of head injuries lead directly to defective memory. With children, it is not enough to notice that an element of soul is involved in disease. As teachers, we must always be alert to every little effect that soul and spirit produce in the child's physical nature. Overdeveloping the memory will harm a child for the rest of life, even the physical body. So how do we develop a child's memory correctly? Most important, we must realize that abstract concepts developed by the rational intellect, overload the memory, especially during the phase of life between the change of teeth and puberty. As I have shown, however, vividly imaginative and perceptible ideas in the lessons, formed artistically as images, awaken living forces that affect even the physical body, allowing memory to develop properly. The best foundation for developing the memory is to teach artistically during the early school years. If art is taught properly, 
proper control of physical movement will always result, and by stimulating children to inner activity in art, if their physical nature is stimulated, along with qualities of spirit as they paint, write, make music, or draw, we properly develop the soul forces that aid memory in the physical body. In tomorrow's lecture I will explain how we do this through eurythmy. We must not make the mistake of believing that we can ever help children by completely ignoring or undernourishing the memory. There are three golden rules for the developing memory. Concepts load the memory. The perceptible, the perceptible arts build it up. Activities of will strengthen it and make it firm. We are given wonderful opportunities to apply these three golden rules when we teach nature and history as suggested in these lectures. Arithmetic, too, may be used for this, because even here we should always begin with an artistic feeling, as I tried to show. When children thoroughly understand the simpler operations, say, counting to ten or twenty, there is no need to worry about allowing them to memorize the rest. It is incorrect to overload children with too many concrete pictures, just as it is incorrect to strain their powers of memory, because when concepts become too complex, they have the same effect. We must carefully observe how memory develops in each individual child. So, we can see the need for teachers to have some understanding of human tendencies toward health or illness. Strange experiences often arise in this connection. A gentleman whose whole thought is concerned with education once came to visit the Waldorf School, and I tried to explain the spirit behind its education. After a while he said, quote, If you work in this way, the teachers will have to know a great deal about medicine. Close quote. To him it seemed impossible that teachers could acquire the necessary medical knowledge. I told him that although this would arise naturally from their knowledge of human nature, a certain amount of medical instruction should be part of any teaching course. Concerns about health should not be left only to a school doctor. It seems we are especially fortunate that our Waldorf school doctor is also part of the College of Teachers. Dr. Eugen Kalisko is a doctor by profession, and in addition to caring for the children's health, he is a member of the teaching staff. In this way, everything connected with the children's physical health is harmonized fully with their education. In effect, our teachers must come to understand the health and illnesses of children. For example, a teacher might notice a child growing pale. Another's child's face is becoming excessively red. Teachers who observe accurately will find that the second child shows signs of growing restless and fretful. Such symptoms are related to the soul and spirit. Abnormal pallor, even a tendency, is caused by overworking the memory. The memory of this child has been stressed, and this must be stopped. The memory of the child with too much color, on the other hand, is underworked. This child must be given things to memorize and made to demonstrate that they have been retained. We must relieve the memory of a child growing pale, whereas we must develop the memory of a child with excessive color. The only way we can deal with the whole human being is by handling the nature of soul and spirit in close harmony with the physical body. 
In a Waldorf school, the children, as growing human beings, are handled according to their individual qualities of spirit, soul, and body, and above all, according to the particular temperament. We arrange children in the classroom so that the various temperaments, choleric, sanguine, melancholic, and phlegmatic, are expressed and adjusted among themselves. The best technique is to have the choleric and melancholic children sit together, because they tend to temper one another. Of course, we must know how to assess and then deal with the various temperaments, because this is at the root of physical development. Consider sanguine children who tend not to pay attention during lessons. Each impression from the outer world directly engages the attention, but passes away just as quickly. The proper treatment for such children is to reduce the amount of sugar in their food, though not too much, of course. The less sugar such children absorb, the more their excessive sanguine qualities are modified and the temperament harmonized. In the case of melancholic children, who always tend to brood, the opposite treatment is needed. Sugar must be added to their food. Thus we work right into the physical constitution of the liver, because the liver's basic activity differs according to the amount of sugar taken in. In effect, every outer activity penetrates deeply into the human organism. A Waldorf school takes the greatest care that there is a close relationship between the teaching staff and the children's parents. Of course, a truly close relationship is possible to only a certain degree, since it depends on the degree of understanding on the part of the parents. We try our best, however, to encourage the parents to come to the teachers for advice about the most suitable diet for individual children. This is no less important than what is taught in the classroom. We must not, however, think in a materialistic way that the body is responsible for everything. The body's role is to be a suitable instrument. We cannot teach a child to play the piano if that child's hands are incapable of working the keys. Similarly, we cannot rid a child of melancholia if the child's liver is overactive, regardless of the psychological techniques of some abstract educational systems. But if the liver's activity is regulated properly by sweetening the diet, such children will be able to use the physical body as a suitable instrument. Then, and not until then, psychological and spiritual techniques can be effective. People frequently believe that education can be reformed by simply repeating abstract ideas. The whole world knows what education should be and how it ought to proceed. Yet true education requires an understanding of the human being that must be acquired gradually. And so I say that such ideas have no practical application, although I neither attack nor belittle the knowledge of nearly everyone on education. This sort of knowledge is like a person who wants a house that looks nice, is comfortable, and withstands the weather, and goes to someone who only knows about such qualities and thinks this is enough to build a house. But mere knowledge of these things has no practical value. This is just about all most people know about the art of education, and yet they think they can reform education. If I want a house built properly, I must go to an architect who knows in detail how a plan must be drawn, how the bricks must be laid, how massive the girders must be to bear the weight on them, and so on. 
Essentially, we must know in detail how human beings are constituted and not speak vaguely about a human nature in the abstract, as one might speak of a weatherproof, comfortable, and beautiful house. The civilized world must realize that technique, a spiritualized technique, of course, is needed in every detail of the art of education. If this realization becomes widespread, it will be a real boon to all praiseworthy efforts toward educational reform today. The significance of such principles is revealed most clearly when we consider children as unique individuals. At times it has been the practice of schools not to allow the children who are unable to keep up with the work in one class to proceed to the next. In an art of education in which children are taught according to their age, there must gradually be no question of leaving a child behind in a class since they will fall behind the sequence of teaching appropriate to their years. In Waldorf schools, of course, each class is made up of children of the same age. Thus, if children who should be in the fourth class are left behind in the third, the inner course of their education begins to conflict with their age. As much as possible, we avoid this in a Waldorf school. A child stays behind only in exceptional cases. We make every effort to handle individual children so that we do not need to hold them back. For this, however, something else is certainly needed. As you know, there are children who do not develop properly and are in some way abnormal. At Waldorf schools, we have instituted a special needs class for those children. This class provides for children whose thinking, feeling or volition are underdeveloped and it has become very dear to our hearts. A child whom we cannot have in a class because of a weak soul force is placed in this separate class. And it is truly delightful to find a kind of competition among the teaching staff at the Waldorf School when we need to move a child from a normal class into the special needs class. Given all I have said, you probably realize that there is real harmony among the Waldorf teaching staff but there is always a certain struggle when such a thing has to be done. It means a real onslaught for Dr. Karl Schubert, a man so blessed in his ability for this work and to whom the special needs class had been entrusted. The teachers never like to give up a child to him. The children too feel it goes against the grain to leave their regular class and the teacher they love and go into the special needs class. Nevertheless, it is a blessing that before long they do not want to leave the special needs class because they have come to love Dr. Schubert. He is extremely well suited to teach this class because of his character and temperament and his infinite capacity for love. This capacity for love, devotion and selflessness, which is the foundation of the art of teaching, is needed even more in an isolated class of this kind, which tries to bring children to a point where they can return to the right class for their age. This is the goal of the special needs class. True knowledge of the human being shows us that it makes absolutely no sense to speak of the human spirit as abnormal or diseased, though of course when speaking colloquially in everyday life there is no need to be fanatical and pedantic about it. Essentially, spirit and soul are never ill. Illness can occur only in the physical foundation and what thus enters the soul. 
Because we can approach the spirit and soul of earthly human beings through the body, when we treat, in quotes, abnormal children, we must realize that the body's abnormality makes it impossible to approach the being of soul and spirit. As soon as we overcome a defect of the body or of body and soul in a child and are able to approach the nature of soul and spirit, we have done what is necessary. In this sense, therefore, our aim must always be to understand and recognize the delicate, intimate qualities and forces of the human body. If we observe that a child does not understand in the normal way, that something prevents a connection with concepts and perceptions, we must conclude that there is some irregularity in the nervous system. Individual treatment helps, perhaps going more slowly in teaching or stimulating the activity of will and so on. For abnormal children, treatment must be individualized and we do immeasurable good by using measures such as I have described. We must pay particular attention, of course, to physical education for such children. For example, imagine a child for whom it is difficult to associate ideas mentally. We can accomplish much by giving physical exercises, through which, out of the child's inner being, the whole organic system becomes more coordinated. For instance, we might tell a boy to touch the lobe of his left ear with the third finger of the right hand, asking him to do the exercise quickly. Then we may tell him to touch the top of his head with the little finger of the left hand and then alternate these two exercises quickly. The organism is made to move in such a way that the child's thinking must flow swiftly into the movements. Thus, by stimulating the nervous system, it becomes a good foundation for the faculty needed when connecting or separating ideas and perceptions. Truly wonderful experiences show us how children's spiritual nature can be stimulated by cultivating the physical body. Suppose, for example, a girl returns again and again to a single fixed idea. This tendency is obviously a great weakness in her soul. She simply cannot help repeating certain words or returning again and again to the same ideas. They grip her being and she cannot get rid of them. By observing such a child closely, we generally find that she walks too much on her heels and less with the toes and front part of the foot. Such a child must perform movements in which she pays attention to each step, repeating them until they eventually become habit. We will see extraordinary improvement in the inner soul defect of this child if it is not too late. Footnote. Symptoms differ, of course, in each child. This is why true knowledge of the human being, one that can make individual distinctions, is so necessary. Rudolf Steiner. End of footnote. Indeed, much can be done in this way between seven and twelve. <laughs> Nevertheless, we must understand how movements of, say, the right-hand fingers affect the speech organism or how movements of the left-hand fingers affect the forces that arise from thinking and assist speech. We must understand, too, how toe-walking and heel-walking affect speaking and thinking, and especially volition. The art of eurythmy, working as it does with normal forces, teaches us a great deal when dealing with the abnormal. Eurythmy movements which have an artistic quality when done by normal people are modified to be therapeutic.
Because the movements are derived from principles of the human organism itself, the faculties of spirit and soul, which can still be aroused during the period of growth, are given an impulse that arises from the physical body. This shows the necessity for understanding the unison between spirit, soul and body when working with abnormal children in school. The excellent course of teaching being developed by Dr. Schubert in this area of the Waldorf School is showing truly wonderful results. Of course, a great power of love and selflessness is needed whenever it is a matter of individualized treatment. These qualities are absolutely essential in the special needs class, and in many ways resignation is needed if one is to achieve any results at all. Since one must work with what is there, and can be brought out of the human being. If we attain only a quarter or a half of what would make the child normal, the parents are still not likely to be completely satisfied. But it is essential that any human action guided and directed by spirit should not depend on outer recognition. Rather, one should become deeply aware of the sustaining power that grows from one's sense of of inner responsibility. This power will gradually increase in an art of education that perceives even in these intimate details of life the harmony between the child's spirit, soul and body. Understanding, perception and observation are what teachers need above all. If teachers have these qualities, speech itself comes to life in their whole being. Instinctively and in an artistic way, such teachers bring to their teaching all that they have learned by observing the human being. At a certain age, as I said yesterday, children must be led from plant and animal lore, which they understand more through their souls, to mineralogy, physics and chemistry, which makes greater demands on their conceptual faculties and intellect, though it is very important that these subjects are not taught too early. During the phase of life when we convey the idea of causality to children and when they learn of cause and effect in nature, it is essential to balance the inorganic, lifeless elements in nature study by leading them into art. If we want to introduce art to children in the right way, not only must our teaching be artistic to begin with, but art itself must play a proper role in education. You can see that the creative arts are cultivated, if only from the fact that the writing lessons begin with a kind of painting. Thus, according to the Waldorf principle, we begin to give painting and drawing lessons at a very tender age. Modeling, too, is cultivated as much as possible, albeit only in a primitive way and after nine or ten. If, at the right age, children begin to model forms and figures, It has a wonderful vitalizing effect on their physical sight as well as the inner soul quality of sight. Most people go through life and never notice the most significant aspect of the objects and events of their environment. In fact, we have to learn how to do it before we can see in a way that gives us our true place in the world. If children are to learn to observe correctly, It is very good for them to begin as early as possible to model, bringing what they see with their head and eyes into the movements of their fingers and hands. 
Thus we not only awaken their taste for the artistic qualities around them, say in the arrangement of a room, and a dislike for the inartistic, but they also begin to observe the things in the world that should flow into human hearts and souls. If we begin musical instruction with singing and lead gradually into instrumental playing, we develop the element of human volition. Musical instruction helps develop not only artistic qualities, but also purely human qualities, especially those of the heart and will. We must, of course, start with singing, but as soon as possible move toward an understanding of instrumental music so that children can learn to distinguish the pure elements of music, rhythm, measure, and melody, from everything else, from imitative or pictorial qualities of music and so on. Increasingly, children must begin to realize and experience the purely musical element. By leading them into the area of art, building a bridge from play to life through art between eleven and twelve, the proper time, we begin to teach them to understand art. In the principles of education that form the goals of Walter for teaching, it is vitally important for children to acquire some understanding of art at the right age. As a necessary balance, we must promote an understanding of art when children begin to realize that nature is ruled by abstract laws best understood through reason. And, in physics, they must learn the links between cause and effect. Children must realize how the various arts developed during different ages of human history and how one or another motif in art plays a role in a particular era. This truly stimulates the elements needed for general development of the human being. In this way, too, we can develop qualities that are essential to moral instruction, as I will show tomorrow. If children understand art, human interrelationships will be quite different from what they would otherwise be. After all, what is the essence of understanding the world, my dear friends? It is the ability to reject, at the right moment, abstract concepts in favor of really understanding the world. The mineral kingdom can be understood in terms of cause and effect. With the plant world, however, it is impossible to grasp everything through logic, reason, and intellect. The formative capacities of human beings must become involved since concepts and ideas must become imagery. Any formative skills that we develop in children help them to understand the formations in plants. The animal kingdom can be comprehended only after the ideas for understanding it have been planted and developed in us through moral education. Only this activates the inner powers that enable us to understand the forces that form the animal structure from the invisible world. Few physiologists today understand the origin of an animal's form. In fact, the origin of the animal form arises from the structure of the organs that in humans become the organs of speaking and singing. That structure is the central origin of the forms and structure of animals. They do not reach the point of articulate speech. It reaches only the point of song as expressed by birds. In speaking and singing, formative forces radiate, shaping airwaves and giving rise to sound. 
life forces in the organs of speaking and singing pass back into the form of animals. It is impossible to understand the form of an animal unless we recognize that it develops musically, as it were, from organs that at a higher level in human beings become the organic structures related to music. To understand the human being, we need an overall view of art, since the faculty of reason can comprehend only the inorganic aspects of our being. If at the right moment we know how to bring the faculty of mental representation over to artistic understanding, then and only then is it possible to truly understand the human being. Such understanding must be awakened by teaching art. If teachers possess real artistic feeling and can introduce children at the right age to Leonardo's Last Supper or Raphael's Sistine Madonna, showing not only the relationships between the various figures, but how color, inner perspective, and so on were treated in those days. In other words, if nature and history are both imbued with an inner quality of soul through teaching that conveys an understanding of art, then we bring the human element into all our teaching. Nothing must be left undone in the way of imbuing children with an artistic feeling at the right age. Our civilization will not receive an impulse toward higher development until more art is introduced into the schools. Not only must teaching be permeated with the arts, but a living understanding of art, evoked by the teacher's own creativity, must be a balance to all the prosaic concepts of nature and history. We consider this an essential part of Waldorf education. It is true, and every genuine artist feels this, that art is not a mere discovery of the human, but a domain that reveals the secrets of nature at a different level than that of ordinary intelligence. Art is a domain in which an artist gazes into the mysteries of the whole universe. Not until one sees the world itself as a work of art and nature herself as the artist are we ready to deepen our being in the religious sense. There is deep meaning in the words of a German poet, quote, Only through the dawn, red of beauty, can you enter the country of Gnosis. Close quote. Footnote, Friedrich Schiller, 1759 to 1804, excuse me, 1759 to 1805, from Die Künstler, 1788, quote, nur, nur durch das Morgenrat des schönen Drinks du in der Erkenntnis Land. Close quote, forgive my German. And a footnote. This is indeed true. When we grasp the whole human being through art, we also generate an understanding of the world in its totality. This is why our goal in teaching should be to add the purely human element to what prosaic culture requires. To this end, not only must teaching itself be full of artistic feeling, but an understanding of art must be awakened in the children. Only in this way can this end be achieved. Art and science then lead to a moral and religious deepening, as we shall see tomorrow. But as a preliminary to religious and moral progress, teaching must establish a balance. On one side of the scale are all those things that lead to prosaic life and bind us to the earth. On the other side are the balancing factors that lead to art. They enable us in every moment of life 
to raise what must first be worked out in the prose of life to an artistic level, and so lead directly into the spirit. The end of Lecture 11